Hello and welcome to this episode of Self Made. I'm your host, D Brown CEO. Joining me back on the show today is Ron Davis, CEO of the Jordan Davis Foundation. Ron, welcome back. Uh, when we ended the last episode, uh, you were talking about uh, when you received the phone call that your, your son had been uh, sensibly killed uh, by a shooter. Can you just take me back to that moment and, and, and kind of recap that for us? Yeah, it, uh, I got the call from his best friend, Leland Brunson's uh, mom, Tanya. And so at that point, they did not know whether my son uh, was alive or dead. And so, you know, you're praying all the way as you're driving to the hospital and, and you know, you go through all those emotions. And then when I finally got there, I, I realized that uh, after a while that, uh, that he had deceased. And so, you know, I always remember that I was the first one to kiss him after he was born, and I wanted to be the last one to kiss him when he was still Jordan, because I always felt that when he gets received by the um, the mortuary, that they're no longer who, who they were. They don't feel the same. They don't look the same, you know, once they, they've had their way with your, your loved ones. Um, so when I touched him and felt him and kissed him, he just felt like Jordan. He felt like my son. And I said goodbye to him, and I said that I did my best to watch after him while he was on earth, and that now the Lord was going to watch after him from here on in. And um, I, I have no idea how I got how I got home, you know, because I, I imagine I drove home, but, you know, everything was a blur. Yeah. And, and one of the hardest things I had to do is when I got home was to tell uh, my wife that Jordan had had been killed. And that was a whole thing that I didn't want to do and, and go through that whole thing. And then I had to call Jordan's mother, my ex-wife, and I'd tell her the same thing. And those two uh, talks that I've had with his stepmother and his mother were some of the hardest that I've ever had in my life. And I, I try not to remember all that was said, try to block it out of my mind. But there was a lot of crying, a lot of screaming, and just a lot of hollering and uh, and after a while, you just get numb. And um, so, you know, we got an attorney, John Phillips, here in Jacksonville. And uh, I was glad that I got him because he, he kind of walked us through some of the things that we had to do. And he kept the press and the, the media from knocking on my door every five minutes. You know, he put a sign out from his law office that, anything that they need to ask me, they need to go through his law office. And that helped a tremendous amount. So I recommend that if anyone loses a loved one and it's a, a high, public, highly publicized occasion or media, that so you won't be disturbed, get your an attorney and let the attorney fill those calls and fill those questions for you before you come out and make your own personal statement. Uh, one thing, another thing that I noticed is that uh, Many times that I had seen on television before when parents have lost loved ones that uh, they always put the microphone in front of the mother and they leave the fathers just sitting on the couch with his own thoughts. And I knew I was going to make it a point to represent the fathers and let them know that we have something to say also because we hurt just like the mother hurts. Right. I know that we're not emotionally geared the same way that mothers are, 
and they get a sound bite from the mothers. Right. But they don't even want to ask the fathers any questions. And that always bothered me. And so when it, it became my turn, I was one of the most outspoken fathers, as you well know on television, about the death of my son. And I want to make sure that stayed intact all the way throughout the trial, which was two trials in 17 months. And I wanted, I felt the need and I felt the responsibility to represent the fathers yeah. in these shootings. You know, we can name the mothers of all the shootings, but we can't name the fathers. And right. we keep up with what the mothers are doing in these shootings, but we don't keep up with the fathers. And I always say that, and, you know, that, that's, that's something that it's so gender-based with the media is that it's terrible and it hurts us. And the fathers, they talk to me all the time. I mean, they'll call me at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. And they'd say, Ron, man, you know, what do you do in this instance? What do you do in that instance? Because they've seen me do it on television. Right. And so I'm, I'm very proud of representing the fathers. Matter of fact, Mike Brown from Ferguson put me in the Chosen Fathers, you know, alumni. And a lot of the fathers, you know, Oscar Grant's fathers out on the West Coast and Oakland, California, and a lot of the fathers across the board, they talked to me because of the fact that, you know, they said I represented the fathers, you know, in goodwill and good faith, and uh, they want to do the same for their children also. So uh, after that, I just took on a more activism life, you know, not only just for the fathers, but I wanted to make sure that I did not let these domestic terrorists get the better of me. Right. And that's what I call Michael Dunn and these people. You know, they make any excuse to shoot our children. Any excuse. You know, and, and you know, even since Jordan has been shot, you know, look look at the excuses. You know, you had a cell phone up to your ear, I thought it was a gun. Right. You know, uh you you and had a little twelve year old with a cat pistol, Tamir Rice. And and you know, any excuse, you know, they jumped out the car and shot this boy within three, four seconds of getting out the car. They didn't even give him a chance to respond. Right. You know, any excuse they want to come up with to shoot our children. Right. And I became an activist. I joined the U.S. Human Rights Network, also been to the White House twice with President Obama. Uh, I have a film out called Three and a Half Minutes, Ten Bullets on HBO, and it's still playing right now. And at every turn, I mean, I even went uh, to Geneva, Switzerland, and spoke at the United Nations Convention in 2014, because I got to speak out against us fathers, you know, saying it's, it's enough is enough. We're here to protect our family, and you're killing our kids without any type of conscience. And I don't accept that. Right. I don't. So um, I want you to just walk me through. I know there were a couple trials associated with uh, this murder. Kind of walk us through uh, that process and, and what happened? Well, in that process, um, Michael Dunn, uh, of course, he's going to lie. The first, the first big lie that Michael Dunn told when the police asked him, well, I'm going to go back. They called him because he did not doubt 911. He pulled off and got to his hotel. When he got to his hotel, he ordered a pizza. Then he made himself a rum and coke. He took his dog out for a walk. That's how distressed he was over killing my son. Uh, and he said he feared for his life. But I, I don't know anybody that feared for their life and they ordered pizza and have a rum and coke and walk the dog. Right. Okay. 
when he heard that he killed Floyd, he decided, him and his girlfriend, to drive to Satellite Beach, Florida, his home, which is almost three hours away from here, without, again, calling 911. So he thought he was getting away with it. He, he, he thought if nobody saw who he was and there was no motive, and he, that's what he thought, and that he didn't know Jordan and he didn't live in Jacksonville, that he would actually get away with it. So it was just another day in the life of Michael John and people that are domestic terrorists like Michael John. And uh, But someone had gotten his license plate number, and they grabbed him as soon as he got to his home. And when he came back, well, they asked him before he even came back, the explanation was that I feared for my life. Uh, Jordan had a shotgun. And I feared for my life. So they said, well, no, there was no gun on the scene, sir. The kid didn't have a shotgun. He didn't have no weapon at all. Well, maybe it was a stick. Or maybe I saw a barrel. Or, you know, was there anything in the car? See, he had looked at all of these videos because he had no type of... Uh, he, he lived in an all-white neighborhood, number one. And so he had never been around white kid, uh, black kids. And all he saw was these videos of kids that were thugs, because he called them thugs. Right. You see? And all he thought was these kids always listen to rap music and they always have guns and they have stacks of money. Yeah. And that's why I told people that sometimes it's dangerous the way people view the hip hop generation. You know, sometimes it's dangerous because if you don't have any interaction with them, you believe everything you see on that screen. You actually believe that. And us having kids, we know our kids are not everything that they see on the screen. We have loving kids, loving families, and that's just them being artists. You know, they they, they, they want to show their artistic side, and you have to take it as art and you have to take it as commercialism and not take it as real life. But this guy, he does. And he uh, he thought, well, these kids must have a gun in the car because they're black kids playing rap. That's what he actually thought. Right. And he blurted, and he said that to his first lawyer, which his lawyer should never have said that to the news because that came out on the news. And then apparently he had a disagreement with his first lawyer because that came out in the news, and he was stuck with that story. And once you come out and say that, you're stuck with it. And he actually fired his first lawyer. Then the second lawyer is uh, he tried to mitigate what was said. Well, maybe it was a stick or maybe it was this, you know. So then if that didn't work because there was no weapon found whatsoever. Then he came back with, well, let's try staying your ground. Let's say that I was wrong, but I thought at the time that my life was in danger. And because I thought that my life was in danger, I'm able to use uh, bodily harm on someone else. So his explanation for shooting was that he thought his life was in danger. And it never was. The kids never got out the car besides the guy that was driving. And when he got back in the car to leave, that's when you started shooting. And not only did you try to shoot them there, then when they were trying to get away, they, he tried to shoot at the back of the car. So originally in the first trial, he was convicted of shooting into an occupied vehicle and also convicted of attempted murder of the other three kids that were in the car because they were driving away. So a lot of people were thinking that me and uh, Lucy McBath, well, she's a congresswoman now, 
Congresswoman McBeth, they thought that we should be satisfied because that was going to give him 70 years in prison. But we were not satisfied because we wanted the state of Florida to say that this man was not able and should not have murdered our child, our miracle child. Right. And we wanted the state of Florida to admit that in, in public. And so we had the second trial. Now, there was a little contention in the district attorney's office because the same district attorney's office that held the Trayvon Martin trial in Sanford, Florida, is the same district attorney office here. And Angela Corr is in charge of the office. And she was in charge of this case. And I told her, number one, in the first trial that I didn't want Bernie, who was the lead prosecutor in that case, to be anywhere near our case, because I thought he did a terrible job. And so uh, we had John Guy as the, the prosecutor, and he was, for me, he was very well respected, and I thought a lot of Mr. Guy. And But one thing I told Angela Corey was, the two things that I felt that they missed in the first trial while they had a mistrial on the count one, which is the murder of my son, was that you have to explain to the jury what premeditated murder is. Premeditation to the lay person is someone goes to their home, gets a gun, come back, shoot somebody, or go to their car, come back, shoot somebody. In our mind, that might be premeditation, but in actual law, you could have 10 seconds of premeditation. And so the mere fact that he had his window up, decided to go in his glove compartment, pull out his gun, which was holstered, take it out of the holster, slide it back and put a chain around in the chamber, then roll down his window and then shoot my son. That's premeditation. That's premeditation. And you have to let the jury know what that's all about. In addition to that, you have to let them know that, you know, and stand your ground. It's talking about reasonable doubt. And when you look at self, uh, you know, reasonable doubt is such a tricky two words. But in court, for some reason, as lay people, we, we, we listen to the last word of that. When you say reasonable doubt, we hear doubt. We hear doubt. That reasonable word doesn't hit us as hard as doubt does. And so when you're in the back room and you're part of the jury, you start saying, well, there's some doubt because, you know, Michael Dunn's story is this way and Jordan's friend's story is this way. We were not there. So there is some doubt. Of course, if you're not there, you're jurors. There's some doubt. The police was not there. There's some doubt. But you have to key on the word reasonable. Right. If 100 people were in the same situation, how many people would do what Michael Dunn did? How many people would grab a gun and shoot into a car full of kids? So you have to see reasonable. Was that reasonable? And we have to hammer that into the jury, what reasonable is. And when they focused on the word reasonable, I think that's what convicted Michael Dunn, because that was not reasonable, the thing that he did. We even had another a witness that said that he was the first car that drove up beside the kids and heard the loud music and decided, you know what? I don't really want to hear all that. And he pulled into another parking space and he testified, you know, he said, actually, I, I really like the song, but it was just too loud for me. So that's a reasonable response when you're in a, a convenience store or in a gas station. That's reasonable. 
And so we, we you know, we, we, we let them know that and we want them to see what reasonable was and that won the way for us. It was relief off of my chest that the state of Florida convicted him of first degree murder in the second trial, life imprisonment with no chance of parole, that he'll never be able to come out and kill or hurt anybody else's children. Right. So I know that um, this tragedy was kind of the catalyst that uh, led to you starting the uh, the Jordan Davis Foundation. So talk to me about the Jordan Davis Foundation and your motivation behind it and, and the work that you're doing in the community. Yes, the uh, motivation behind uh, starting the Jordan Davis Foundation, which was in 2013, uh, right after his death, was that uh, a lot of people uh, must realize that parents that go through this, there's a lot of trauma involved. You know, if you see them on the street or on television smiling, they're hiding a lot of trauma. There's a lot of trauma there. When these holidays come up like Thanksgiving and Christmas and there's an empty chair, we even did an empty chair. Uh, I think it was like 20 of us uh, that were highly publicized uh, trials. The parents did a uh, empty chair video one year. And uh, all these parents got together and they were showing video. We all put the videos and they had them on television that we all had empty chairs during Thanksgiving. So there's a lot of trauma involved. There's a lot of uh, meetings that go on behind the scenes. Uh, I know I joined one uh, two years ago. We were in San Diego. We had 300 families that had been through the very similar you know, situation that we went through with Jordan. And uh, they flew us all in, uh, plus this to, to decompress. Um, I needed the foundation to put this trauma somewhere. I needed to lay it somewhere. I needed to have an outlet because either you go into a fetal position and you don't want to be bothered with the world or you get out and you try to help your community and other communities. And I decided to do that. I became a public speaker. I've spoken at approximately 30 universities across the country, including UConn and Dartmouth and UCLA, Howard University, Carnegie Mellon, many universities across the country. And I, I speak because I want people not only to feel and see my trauma, you know, not only that, but I want them to know that these things don't happen. And because it's not in the news anymore, it's over for those parents. You know, it's still there for them. And so with the foundation, I decided to go global, to go to different countries. I was fortunate to be able to go uh, on a, basically, I didn't know, I hadn't met any black person that went on a sabbatical, but they wanted me to go on a sabbatical to India. So I went to India, and I believe that was in 2016. And um, it was the uh, 69th anniversary of the death and martyrdom of Mahatma Gandhi. And they had a celebration with their vice president, Modi's vice, Modi's vice president was there. And I stood on the actual grass and the actual place where Gandhi's blood spilled on the ground. And, and that 
I just felt a spiritual connection to, to what this man went through and his transition from him being an elitist, thinking that he was better than black people to figuring out and realizing that he was black also and that uh, he was going to go through some trials regarding his race and his ethnicity. Yeah. And so then they took me to the one of the seven wonders of the world, which was the uh, Taj Mahal. And they talked to me about love. So I went through tragedy with Gandhi, then I went through love with the Taj Mahal, where the king's third wife, he wanted to build a monument that would last forever to his wife that he loved dearly. So it taught me about love with this man. He almost bankrupted the country just to build that Taj Mahal. So I went there, and then they took me up in the Himalayan mountains, and I stayed for four days in the Himalayas, me and a group of about 15 others. And this was the spiritual thing that they wanted to teach me about your spirit. And I'm in the Himalayas, and I'm around uh, cattle with horns, you know, I'm walking in, in step with them, and, you know, they're sacred. And then these monkeys are jumping from the trees. They're about three feet tall, wild monkeys, and they're walking with you as if they're human. It was an unbelievable experience. And you, you have an all-vegetarian diet for the whole 10 days you're in India. And every morning you get up at the daybreak and you sit in a circle and they teach you about breathing exercises, how to breathe. You know, something that we don't learn is something that we just do naturally. But there's an art to it and there's a learning to it. And I learned how to breathe and listen and hear myself and hear my thoughts and hear even the birds, the wings of the birds outside. You hear things you never thought you'd hear. And then in addition to that, uh, you ended up uh, going out with the monks and the swamis. And the one thing that the swami, he talked to me about in front of all the other monks, he said that, what do you need from me? And I told him, and I didn't even know he was going to talk to me. I said, I need to learn forgiveness. I said, because uh, George's mother said on camera that she forgave Michael Dunn. And I told him, because he showed me no remorse, I could not forgive him. And so it was heavy in my heart. And he told me that, you know, Michael Dunn is in prison, but you're in prison also. But you have the key. And he said, I want you to not forgive the act that Michael Dunn did. But I want you to think about the child that God brought into this world. When Michael Dunn was brought into this world by God, that's the one I want you to focus on. And that's the one you have to try to forgive. Because the man you be he became has nothing to do with the man he started out. We don't start out the same way we end up. And when I could separate the two people, that I could separate and forgive the child that God brought into this world, that Michael Dunn, it was uplifting to me. And I didn't have to forgive the man he became. And I didn't know you could separate it. And so when that happened, I came out of the mountains in the, in the Himalayas, and I was smiling. I was joyful. And I had a testimony to tell people about. And I took this foundation to India. I took it to the, the Himalayas. I took the foundation also to Thailand. I've been doing work in the Philippines. I've been in the Philippines for the past year, for the whole year last year. I have uh, 70 volunteers in the Philippines that we do events, you know, with the foundation. I sponsor a girl youth volleyball team. I sponsor a young men's 
basketball team in the Philippines. Uh, I put on events for them to show them how to sustain life when they look like that there, there's no hope. I make sure that they have what they need, so have hope. They send me their grades. I make sure they help get them through school. A lot of them are going into the police academy and different other things over there. And they send me their grades and their semesters, and, and I keep up with them. Uh, we fed hundreds and hundreds of uh, families that were in distressed areas in Iloilo in the Philippines and Cebu in the Philippines. And this is all because of the death of my son. I wanted the death of Jordan to mean something, and right. it does. And we've gone to different other islands in the Philippines, and we've done this, this kind of thing. And also at back at home, we've given scholarships for kids here. Hey, Ron, I want to jump in here as we close the show out and uh, just really say that uh, you know, it, you've been a very, very strong individual uh, through this uh, this tragedy, and uh, you know it's it, it's tough to even imagine, uh, you know, having uh, children of my own having to deal with something like this, and then on top of it, just being just so senseless in terms of how it happened and why it happened. And I want to commend you for how you have, uh, you know, been able to take this tragedy and turn it into. Uh, something positive and, and try to help other individuals uh, who have dealt with such a similar situation. And so I want to thank you for taking time out to be on this show. And I also want to thank my viewers for watching this episode of Self Made with D Brown CEO. And remember, without you, there's no me.